And open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 10, if you will. Appreciate you all uh, praying for me last week as I had the flu. And uh, I've been getting a, a little bit better in the last few days. So thank you for, for lifting me up. Prayer is powerful. Don't forget we got a prayer sheet in our bulletin that you can use to uh, track the needs of our church members. We want to be praying for one another. We believe that God is listening. And so uh, please be diligent to pray for the needs of the people of our church so that we can lift one another up and support one another through our struggles and also rejoice with one another when we have something to praise the Lord about. Don't be afraid to share your praises with us too. We often get those little cards that are in the front of your seat letting people or letting us know that uh, there's a need in the church body, but also if God is doing something great, please share a praise with us as well so we can report that to the church and, uh, and let them know that God is, is good and, and let them know that He is good in specific ways. We love to share praises as well as prayer requests. Well, if you could turn to chapter 10 of Romans, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is what we're going to be focusing on today. We've been studying some of the men that God has used in mighty ways to bring about reform in his church, specifically uh, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And as we've been learning, uh, Reformation is not a process that ended in that historical time period. It's, it's a process that continues on today. It is a process that God is using to continue to refine his people bring about greater sanctification and refinement in our hearts as we desire to be more holy as He is holy. Not just His church is being refined, but even our individual hearts are in need of refinement. So as we learn from these reformers and their experiences with the Lord God and how He used them in great ways to bless His church, it also is challenging us to be, uh, to be aware of the fact that there is sin that dwells in us. There's things in us that needs to change, that needs to be refined, and God will use His Word to accomplish those tasks. John, Na uh, John Knox is the man that we're going to be uh, learning about this morning. He's a perfect example of the powerful process that God so often uses to bring about this change in the heart of mankind. In Romans 10, we're going to get a glimpse of, of what really weighs heavy on the heart of, of Paul the Apostle. Though he cares about all people, we learn that Paul the Apostle's heart is particularly burdened that the nation of Israel, his own countrymen, would be saved by the gospel of Jesus. Our study through the Gospel of Luke has showed very clearly how Jesus is pointing out to the Israelites that their hardness of heart towards the things of God, specifically towards the prophets by which God has tried to speak to them, that hardness of heart was a serious problem. And how they could not afford to reject God's Messiah again as they had rejected so many of the prophets that God sent before. Eventually saying no to God's messenger is the same as saying no to God. So the Apostle Paul is very burdened that his fellow Israelites would hear the truth and we respond to it with a soft heart. So in the opening verses of Romans 10, which we're not going to go over in detail today, the, the first part, we're going to focus on the second part. Paul begins by describing that, that serious peril that the Israelites are in because of their stubbornness, because of their reluctance to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, the chosen Savior of the world. But Paul also makes it clear that he hasn't given up on them. He continues to pray for them, that God might change their heart, that they might hear the gospel and respond in a repentant way. He goes on to explain that though ethnic Israel has been reluctant to, to uh, believe in Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus is the end of the law for everyone, not just for the Jewish people. This means that the covenant of law that God agreed with, agreed to, uh, with, with Moses about uh, had been completely satisfied in the life 
of Jesus Christ. He did what we could not do. He lived perfectly according to that law. And by then going to the cross and giving his perfect life as a spotless sacrifice there, Jesus suffered, he bled, he died, and he rose again as part of God's plan to bring us into a new time period, a period of grace, a covenant by which we might be saved if we trust in his work rather than trying to do work ourselves. Now, when we trust in Jesus, of course, a heart that loves the Lord is going to want to be obedient to him. So we're not antinomians. We don't believe the law is completely dead now. The law is still useful to us, but it is no, uh, in, in no way the means that we are saved by God. This new covenant of grace was a tremendous blessing to the world because through it, we can be saved of our sin. Now, the necessary response of someone who trusts in God is briefly described in condensed form in verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 10. Paul tells us there that with the heart, we believe in Jesus Christ. Having heard the plain truth of God's word that we are sinners, that our sin offends God and separates us away from him, that, that the perfect creator cannot be in right fellowship with somebody who is wicked and filthy and evil. But then also hearing that Jesus Christ came to earth as God in the flesh and gave his life on the cross for our sin, having heard those things, believe. Do not be like so many in Israel who reject God's prophets, who reject his Messiah, but rather believe that God raised Jesus from the dead as a payment for our sin and believe that he paid the penalty in such a way that we may also be raised from the dead one day. So with the heart, one believes. And then secondly, with the mouth, one confesses. We confess our belief in Jesus Christ. You confess that as one who is justified, who is made right by Jesus, you owe him everything in your life. He is rightfully your Lord, and you are not ashamed of that fact. One who believes in a trusting way in the work of Jesus Christ, not just in some intellectual way, not just in some, oh, I know Jesus lived and I know he taught some useful things, but one who really believes in their heart that Christ is the one that God has sent to save us will surrender to that truth of the gospel. Jesus will no longer be some historical figure by, of a bygone age, but he will be to you a risen and living king who leads you and guides you day by day through your every decision and will not be able, you will not be able to hide that transformation that he's bringing about in your life. You will confess it. So we believe in the heart that Jesus is Lord and we confess with our mouth that God has raised him from the dead and assured salvation for all who trust in him. Romans 10 makes it clear that there is only one Lord. And then Paul goes on to describe that there is only, not only a, a Gentile Lord and some Jewish Lord, he talks to us about how there is one Lord for all who would believe. All who call on him can be saved. But, but as he continues in this, uh, this polemic, he tells us, or asks the question and, and fleshes it out for us, but who will call on the name of the Lord? Who are those who will actually believe and confess? And so that's where we find ourselves as we get to Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. And that's what we're going to read together today. That's what we're going to meditate on. And those scriptures are going to really highlight the strength of the life of this reformer of Scotland who is named John Knox. Starting in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. May the Lord God uh, add blessing to us through the hearing and the, and the, the preaching of this word. So verses 14 through 17 draw our attention to this method that God so wonderfully uses to bring about his salvation and those he's, he has chosen. To be saved, we must call on the name of the Lord. We must confess with our mouth that he is who he says he is. But here's the thing. How is that supposed to happen? How are we to call on the name of the Lord if we do not first believe? We must believe on that name of the Lord. We must believe that he is who he says he is. Someone who has no reason to trust in Jesus Christ will by no means call on him. Someone to whom Christ is a total stranger and to whom Jesus' work is a mystery will not call on the name of the Lord. But someone doesn't just start randomly believing in something they don't know anything about. Belief is not just something we catch like the flu one day. We believe in the Lord because we first heard about the Lord. We must first hear about the name of the Lord and who he is and why he was sent by God. Somehow the knowledge of the great things that Jesus Christ has done to defeat our sin and save us from death and from God's wrath has got to be communicated to us in a way that we can understand it. And for that to occur, for us to hear the gospel, someone must preach of the truth of the Lord. They must boldly proclaim God's plan to save us by grace through faith in his perfect son, Jesus Christ. So to follow the, the pattern that is set here in these verses of Romans 10, 14 through 17, preaching leads to hearing. Hearing leads to believing. Believing causes someone to call on the name of Jesus Christ. And when that calling becomes evident in our lives, when we confess that transforming process by obeying God, by following Him, then the evidence of our salvation is clear and we can see that we belong in His family by grace. So this morning, we're going to focus on that fact that is His great plan of salvation. God has ordained a very special process by which He will make people hear. And it begins by the preaching of God's Word. Now our tour through the Reformation uh, that has occurred over the last several weeks um, has gone through Germany with Martin Luther, on to England with William Tyndale, who translated the Bible to English for the first time from the Greek and the Hebrew. And then it has carried us through to France and then Switzerland with John Calvin last week. And today will bring us to a small island nation of Scotland that is positioned just to the north of England and is connected to it. 16th century Scotland was in desperate need of some legitimate preachers of the word. The Scotland that John Knox was born into in 1514 was riddled with the same theological problems that plagued the rest of Europe at that time. Tradition had become more important to people than God's word. Mary and the saints were being venerated and worshipped on the same level as Jesus was. The Pope was considered powerful enough to overrule the Bible. And the doctrine of the church was sick. It was in need of healing because of the very low view that people had of God's scripture. So in order for the people to believe and confess, Scotland was going to need some reformation. And that reformation was going to have to come through powerful preaching. Born in 1514 in Haddington, which is about 15 miles to the east of Edinburgh, 
John Knox entered the University of St. Andrews in 1529. At the age of 22, John Knox had earned his master's degree. So if you were here last week, that means he was a little bit of a slacker compared to John Calvin, <laughs> who had a master's degree by the time he was 19, right? Still, 22 is a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty ambitious goal. He achieves this master's degree, and then in the same year, 1536, he was ordained into ministry in the Roman Catholic Church. He desired to be a priest. He grew up in that culture, and so to him, that was the natural course of things. He wanted to serve his God, and so he decided to be a priest. There was no parish for him to serve in at the time. Sadly, Scotland needed good preaching, but every pulpit was filled and was filled with people who weren't preaching the word of God, so he had nowhere he could serve. So he worked as a notary and as a private tutor to the children of two prominent families in Scotland who had Protestant beliefs. They had, these men had read the scripture. They had listened to some of these other preachers in other areas. Martin Luther's writings had come to their attention. They were starting to read the Institutes of John Calvin. And so they were exposed to these Reformation ideas. And they asked John Knox to tutor their children in the Word. A combination of deep personal study in God's Word and some thought-provoking discussions with his reform-minded employers began to cause an internal shift in the heart of Knox's personal convictions. And by the end of March... 1543, he was committed to the gospel. He had given his life to Christ and become saved. This is a man who's already ordained as a priest, but for the first time he understood that salvation comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. The preaching of a man named Thomas Guion, who was an ex-Dominican friar that now served as a chaplain to the Earl of Aran, was no doubt influential to uh, John Knox's understanding of the gospel, but we don't have any real history about how the two were connected, but we see real evidence early in his writings that Guillaume's preaching was made available to him. At the end of his life, John Knox would point back to the 17th chapter of John as the passage of scripture that God powerfully used to make him surrender to the cross. It was known as the high priestly prayer where Jesus, before he gives his life, for uh, sinners like you and, and like me on the cross, Jesus prays. He prays a heartfelt prayer for the people who would believe in him. And it was that passage of scripture where Knox says he first cast his anchor upon the security of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the next two years, Knox would set himself to studying the scripture anew in light of what he had come to know, what had been revealed to him through the power of the Holy Spirit. As Knox began to reformulate his view of the world, a powerful Reformed preacher by the name of George Wishart began an itinerant preaching ministry around Scotland, traveling from church to church and helping spread the message of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Wishart had been educated in France, but he was from Scotland, and when he had gotten an, a Reformation-style education in France, he came back to his homeland to let people know what he had discovered. He came under fire, though. He, uh, he was teaching things that were very controversial to those who were in power and were still allied with the Roman Catholic Church. He had taken a job as a school teacher, and he got in trouble because he was teaching the kids Greek so that they could read the Bible in the original Greek manuscripts. Now, at that time, the, the Roman Catholic Church didn't want the Bible to be in the hands of people. They thought that that was too dangerous, that people without proper church training would misinterpret the word, and so they scorned him and kicked him out of town because he was teaching these children to read the Bible in Greek. But that did not stop him. 
Wishart was a very gentle-hearted man, but he was completely unwilling to compromise the truth or remain silent when it came to matters of Scripture. He preached wherever he could find a willing pulpit. And Knox was greatly stirred by hearing Wishart's message and his personal testimony, and they quickly became friends. They began to discuss again and again what they believed in Scripture and were encouraging one another to continue to stand in this truth that they had been made known of. Their time together lasted only four or five months, but it made an incredible impact on the kind of minister Knox would grow to be. Now, Wishart's bold and fearless preaching drew the attention of those who were hostile to reform doctrine. They didn't like him. And threats began to pour in about his, his livelihood. They said that they were going to kill him. They told him he needed to leave Scotland before something bad happened to him. And in fact, he lingered and preached on. And a cardinal by the name of David Beaton, who was very upset at Wishart's bold, reformed preaching, sent a priest to murder Wishart with a dagger. But Wishart, when he was attempted to be murdered, grabbed the man's hand, wrestled the dagger from his hand, and pushed him away. In that moment, the crowds saw what was going on, and they began to attack the assassin. And then Wishart defended his would-be assassin with the very knife he had just wrestled from his hand and implored the crowds to let the man go. He was a gentle man, but he stood firm and preached boldly when it came to Scripture. Wishart's life was clearly in jeopardy. And Knox could not just stand idly by and watch his friend be murdered. So he dedicated himself to the protection of his fellow minister so that Weishart's preaching would not be interrupted, becoming his personal bodyguard and traveling from parish to parish with him as he preached the word. Now, legend has it that Knox would walk up to the pulpit with Wishart with a two-handed claymore sword in his hand and stand there. Now, we don't have any record of him ever having to use that sword against anyone, but he was sending a message loud and clear that he would let no one stop the preaching of the true word of God. Despite Knox's attempts to defend his friend, Wishart was eventually arrested and taken to St. Andrew's Castle for sentencing. Knox was ready to fight for Wishart's um, cause, but Wishart sent him back to his pupils in Longnidry insisting that one life spent for the cause of the Reformation was enough to spend at this moment. Wishart was put to death by his captors in March of 1546, and as the fires were ignited around him, Wishart cried out, God, I beseech Christ to forgive them that, they con they, that condemned me to death this day so ignorantly. It, it has been written, uh, William Blakely, a known historian, notes that Wishart was to Knox as Stephen, the apostle, was to Paul. If you've read the early chapters of Acts, Stephen was the first martyr to give his life preaching the truth uh, to the Judaizers of the day, and he was stoned to death. And Wishart's death had a, a similar inspiring and stirring effect on Knox as he dedicated himself to stand for this message and to not be silenced. Knox's tutoring job soon became more akin to personal discipleship as he taught his students systematically through the Gospel of John, he was an accurate and, uh, and, and proficient handler of God's word and taught with such force and, and such personal conviction that the people who heard from him began to develop that same conviction in their own hearts. Though he enjoyed the personal discipleship uh, that he was doing, he soon felt the calling of the Spirit to serve the Lord in a more shepherding capacity. Others had noticed his ability to preach, and many asked him to serve as a pastor in the local parish of, of Reformed Believers. After uh, several nights of heart-searching prayer, 
pleading to God for wisdom and direction, Knox agreed to take the pastoral position over the Protestants who gathered near St. Andrew's Castle. Knox picked up the torch, if you will, that Wishart handed off to him and immediately began preaching against the error of straying from God's word, implicating the higher-ranking officials, particularly the archbishops and the bishops of the Roman Catholic Church, and he did so very plainly and boldly. He was so straightforward that many of his parishioners feared that he'd be assassinated in short order because he was exposing the sins of these men in the, in the higher rankings of the church. He saw the gospel of Jesus Christ as the trumpet of God that needed to be sounded throughout the world, and he was more than willing to do that task in his homeland of Scotland to his countrymen, even if it put his own life at risk. Now, before long, John Knox's bold preaching did draw the negative attention of powerful citizens who were associated still with the Roman church. But by providence, he was not arrested or put on trial. Nevertheless, this growing resentment towards him put him under more and more pressure. The community of Catholic believers there who were trying to coexist with the Reformed believers began to be, uh, see him as a threat. And they wrote letters to Rome asking Rome to respond. Now, the French at the time were devoutly loyal to the Pope, and they heard about John Knox and his preaching, and they felt compelled to stifle this would-be Reformation before it took root in Scotland. And so in June of 1554, uh, 18 French galleons attacked St. Andrew's Castle, bombing them into submission. The Protestant civilians had no choice but to surrender to the French forces, and Knox was taken captive along with about 120 other resistors. They were detained as galley slaves for 19 months in the French ships. Now those ships uh, in those days had great sails, but if you got to a place where the wind was blowing contrary to where you wanted to go, or if it was a particularly still day, uh, still day those ships had oars that they could deploy. And so John Knox spent the, ne the next 19 months in terrible, horrendous conditions, chained to an oar, acting as the motor to this French Catholic ship. Galley fever, malnourishment, terrible sanitation were just a few of the hardships he had to battle through. Not to mention the fact that the whole time he was serving as the motor of that ship, his captors were insulting him and slandering him and teasing him, trying to get him to convert to Catholicism, telling them that what he believed was foolishness and that his efforts were futile. But they had no success in deterring this man's heart. In 1549... England crowned themselves a new king, King Edward VI. Edward happened to be a Protestant, and Scotland happened to be under English rule. He negotiated the release of the Scottish galley slaves, putting an end to Knox's grueling imprisonment. See, Scotland was considered a property of England, so there would be a king or a queen in England, but there would also be a regent king or queen in Scotland who managed the immediate affairs of Scotland. When the king of England became a Protestant, then the pressure was released from these galley slaves and they were given their freedom. Now, unfortunately, Knox knew that he had no hope of going back to St. Andrews without being persecuted further, possibly arrested or, or even put to death by the men who resided there. And so he decided to flee from Scotland and make his home in London, where he was well received by the other reformers and given a home there. He preached for the next five years in exile, going from church to church. Now, on several occasions, Knox found himself brought before theological councils. 
he got himself into hot water with his preaching. They indicted him as a heretic. They accused him of wrongs against the empire. But on each occasion, he was able to defend himself boldly from the pages of God's word. He did not come to them with political excuses for what he was doing, but rather simply opened God's scripture and showed how the things that he preached came from the very word of God. Those who tried to contemn him could not convict him of anything wrong in God's scripture. And so against the odds, Knox escaped the hangman's noose again and again and again. His preaching got him, preaching got him into hot water, but his preaching often also got him out of hot water because people could not contend against the Lord. Do you see the thread that is, is so far sewing together the life of John Knox? We see a pattern that is emerging here. What so affected Knox that he would lay down his life for the gospel? Powerful preaching, the preaching of Wisheart and the preaching of Guyerre. How were his countrymen stirred awake to faithful action? By preaching, by Knox preaching the truth and standing up boldly to point the finger at people who were teaching heresy and who were exploiting the church. How did Knox defend himself against the accusations of heresy? The answer to these questions is always, again, strong biblical preaching. On July 6th, 1553, Edward VI dies at age 16, leaving the throne of England vacant. Seizing the throne and taking control of England and Scotland was Mary Tudor. You might know her better by the name she is often referred to in, by historians, Bloody Mary. Mary was devoted to the Roman Catholic cause and she fiercely opposed the Reformation movement. She would quickly reverse Edward's course and begin persecuting English reformers and Scottish reformers and would do so for the next five years. Some 280 reformers and Protestant worshipers would be put to death under Mary, including women and children, because they refused to pledge themselves to the Pope and the Pope's authority. By 1554, John Knox realized there was little hope of avoiding death if he stayed in England because the persecution was spreading beyond the borders of Scotland. And so essentially, he's exiled again. Ironically, when he fled the French captors, he went to England. Now that England is taken over by Bloody Mary, he flees to France and takes exile there. While hiding in France, Knox did not waste his time. He wrote letters encouraging the reformers in Scotland and England, and he developed a theological viewpoint that it was better to stand and fight against a wicked government that forced one into idolatry than to stand idly by. Now, Calvin and Tyndale disagreed with him on some of the points of that stance, but he didn't just jump to it uh, quickly. He traveled from city to city seeking counsel with all of the great reformed minds because he would hate to preach something that he did not believe could be supported with the scripture. It was not his way to jump to conclusions hastily, and so he sought much counsel. After traveling around and discussing the plight of the Reformation in Scotland and getting advice on how to proceed, Knox settled in under the teaching of John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland. And John Calvin would become to him a great, uh, great mentor in the Word and would help him develop his ideas. They did not agree on everything, but they agreed at the, on the heart of the gospel with, with such, a, uh, with such a, an accord that they became like iron that sharpens iron and encourages one another towards a greater love and devotion to the gospel of Jesus. In 1955, Knox decided to return to Scotland briefly. He wanted to check on the believers who were there and he wanted to get his fiancée, Marjorie, they had not been able to be married because he had to flee in, with such quickness. And so he entered into the country at great risk to himself. 
because this is still under the reign of Bloody Mary. And he preached at the Privy Kirks. The word Kirk means church in Scotland, and Privy means private. So under this persecution, private churches began meeting underground in homes and in different areas so that the word of God could still be spread through the people, uh, but they could hopefully avoid the persecution of the regime that was on the throne in England. At one point, alerted of his presence and preaching, the Queen Regent of Scotland, now this is not Mary Tudor, this is the queen that was over Scotland specifically. The Queen Regent of Scotland summoned Knox to face accusations of rebellion against the crown. Now many just expected Knox at, at this threat to just leave the country, and that was probably her intention, was to just scare him off. But to the queen's surprise and to the surprise of many of his countrymen, he answered that summons by saying, I will meet you in Edinburgh. I come to preach the truth to you and to show you through scripture why I am standing against your regime. The Scots who heard this were so inspired by it that many men pledged to march with him into Edinburgh. And word got back to the queen and she withdrew her summons. She did not want an uprising. She did not want a civil war. She was intimidated by the boldness of this preacher. Nevertheless, Knox and his constituents marched on Edinburgh and did a revival for several weeks preaching the truth and sharing with people how they must stand for what they believe if it comes from the word of God. After encouraging his countrymen and after marrying uh, his wife, Knox returned to Geneva to serve alongside John Calvin. From the years of 1556 to 1559, he pastored an English-speaking church there in Geneva. There were several refugees who had sought uh, asylum in Geneva because Bloody Mary was threatening to kill them. And so they gathered in Geneva, and John Knox was able to pastor them under the, the tutelage of John Calvin. He and Marjorie had a son, Nathaniel. They would go on to have two boys before Marjorie's early death. And during that period of time in Geneva, they lived at peace. But that peace did not make him forget the suffering of his countrymen in Scotland. He constantly asked himself, should I return to my home and rally resistance to the crown? Or should I stay here and encourage these refugees who sought asylum in Geneva? On November 17th, 1558, Mary Tudor passed away. And her half-sister, Elizabeth I, ascends to the throne in England. Now, Elizabeth was a moderate Protestant. And so she halted the execution of the reformers in England and Scotland. The Genevan reformers, or the Genevan refugees, rather, returned to England from Geneva. And so Knox didn't need to shepherd them anymore. He decided that it was time to go back to Scotland. Mary of Guise was the queen regent over Scotland at the time and fought to suppress the Protestant ideas of Elizabeth in England. She tried to hold to this Catholic uh, doctrine that, that she had been grown up in. And so on May 11th, Knox comes back into Scotland. He preaches a fiery sermon against the idolatry of the church, which is so stirring that a, a riot spontaneously erupts in Edinburgh. And, and the people break out uh, with action, going around the town and tearing down the icons that had been erected. Icons were religious statues that were often worshipped and given venerance. And so the, the, the preaching of Knox showed that this was an, un, an unholy thing to do. So the people went through and smashed these, these statues to the ground to try to rid their town of idolatry. The conflict escalated from there. Mary of Guise assembled a small army of about 2,000 people and begins to march troops towards these reformers to try to subdue them. 
But the Scots assembled an even bigger militia from the civilians that were there to defend themselves. <coughs> At first, a peace treaty is reached because there's a hope that they might be able to avoid a bloodbath. But Mary almost immediately breaks it when their guard is down and sends troops in anyway. Knox inspires the noblemen to join together to protect their freedoms, and an intense period of several months unfolds after that. Through this intense period, when Scotland was on the brink of war, many threats were made on John's life. The preacher responded to them by declaring this. He said, My life is in the custody of him whose glory I seek. Therefore, I cannot so fear their boast of nor tyranny that I will cease from doing my duty. When of his mercy he offereth me the occasion, I desire the hand or weapon of no man to defend me. In other words, what Knox is saying here is that if God gives me an opportunity to preach the gospel, I cannot from fear stop from preaching the gospel. I must continue to stand for which God has saved me through. June 11th, Knox preaches once again in the pulpit of St. Andrew's Castle. That was the pulpit that was his when he was captured and made a slave for 19 months. Historians write that he had seen that castle from the porthole of the ship as he rode several times passing to and fro through the channel. And he had always assured the people around him that God would bring him, bring him freedom and that he would one day again preach in that castle. It happened on June 11th where he renounced the idolatry of the Roman Catholic Church and the ways of worship in such a powerful manner that even 21 priests gave their lives to Christ that day. After two months of rallying his countrymen, John Knox is appointed the minister of St. Giles Church in Edinburgh, which was the most influential pastorate in Scotland at the time. And he becomes the de facto leader of the Reformation there. Just as Paul in Romans 10 expressed a great desire for his own Israelite brethren, so too does John Knox have an intense desire to see Scotland rid of bad doctrine that causes people to be under the yoke of idolatry and the slavery of the Pope. Preaching was at the heart of this Reformation. But what is so special about preaching that God would use it to inspire belief and confession in those who God draws to himself? And we might very well ask the question, what is the difference between preaching and teaching? First of all, I want to point out the preaching and teaching are not so strictly separate as some might have us believe. The difference is not, as many popular commentators have often said, the difference is not that preaching is to the heart and teaching is to the head. That's not the case. In fact, good preaching must engage the mind. Good preaching, preaching must make us think, but it also must stir our conscience. So it's not just a difference of teaching goes to the head and is intellectual and preaching is emotional and goes to the heart. That's not the case. The difference between teaching and preaching is not that preaching is shouted and is given with enthusiasm and zeal and passion, whereas teaching is, is moderate and spoken and given in a more academic content. That's not, that's not the case at all. Some of the greatest preaching I've heard has been whispered from a pulpit with gravity. It doesn't have to be shouted. We don't have to break anything to show our passion for the Lord God. But often preaching is vibrant and alive. Likewise, some of the best teaching is very expressive and emotive. So those aren't the things that separate preaching and teaching. Some people say that preaching is simple so that the common man can understand it, whereas teaching is more complex for people who have a greater intellect. That's not the, the case either. You can't say that Jesus' teaching was just simple, simple. There was some great depth 
and nuance to Jesus' teaching, and it confounded many. But it was still a, a preaching that impacted the hearts of not only the simple, but also those who were advanced, uh, advanced in knowledge. So those are not the things that make preaching different than teaching. To find out the difference between the two, let's look to Scripture. Acts chapter 28, verses 30 through 31 describe a portion of scripture that records Paul the Apostle's time in Rome as he's attempting to establish churches there. Verse 30 says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who, who came to him. Verse 31, Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So what was Paul doing in Rome, he was proclaiming, which is the same Greek word as preaching. He was preaching the gospel. He was preaching the kingdom of God. And what else was he doing at the same time? He was teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was doing both of those things with boldness and without hindrance. So this nonsense that, that teaching is academic and has no passion to it, that wasn't borne out in the life of Paul the Apostle who preached with boldness and taught with confidence and boldness. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 says, Him we proclaim, again, the same word for preaching, Him we preach, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We see preaching, proclamation, and teaching together in the same context. So good preaching accomplishes teaching. It accomplishes communicating concepts and wisdom and ideas from one mind to another. That's the definition of teaching. Giving you what I know so that you can know it too. But it is more specialized than teaching because preaching delivers God's truth with a kind of power the other method lacks. It is God's truth proclaimed. Preaching is heralding the good news of God. Now, here's what heralding means. As a messenger would ride into town and deliver the edicts of a king. Proclaim them to the people. It wasn't a negotiation. It was a declaration of what the king desired for his subjects. So is right preaching delivered with force because it is a proclamation of what God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, wants for his subjects. Understand, there is, by necessity, confidence in God's truth preached to the world. The things that are preached are not, by and large, suggestions that we can just kind of do what we want with. They're not philosophies that we can debate. They are the imperative truths revealed to another as they have been revealed to the preacher through the Word of God. Teaching gives you knowledge that you then decide whether you want to use or ignore. How many of you went to school and got a degree in something that you don't do anything with today? Okay? Teaching is sometimes put to use and sometimes it's not put to use. But preaching is declarative in nature. It lays upon those who hear it a moral command. If you want to align yourself with the will of God, preaching cannot be ignored. It cannot just be stored away in your intellectual files. You are compelled to respond to preaching. Good preaching ought to have impacted the preacher before it impacts the listener. This is important. When a man comes before you and preaches to you how you ought to live and that man does not 
bear the marks of that command himself, if he lives a way that is contrary to what he is preaching to you, then his preaching will be without power. He will not be able to stand as one who was first affected by the edict and the authority of the king in such a way that he can now come and deliver that edict and authority to someone else. So good preaching ought to have impacted the preacher before it impacts the listener. And that confidence that the preacher brings as he delivers the message of the king should not be completely devoid of humility. Don't get this wrong. It doesn't mean that preaching is just stern, mean rebuking. Often preaching comes with a humility of its own. By 1560, things had changed in Scotland to such a degree that the work of John Knox and the work of the reformers had caused great progress to happen in the nation of Scotland. There was a regent who was amenable to the changes that these reformers wanted to make, and they began to establish new laws and new guidelines that not only protected Protestant belief, but made it the official religion of Scotland. The Protestant faith needed guidelines, it needed boundaries, and so the regent at the time assigned John Knox and a group of others to come up with a confession, which would be called the Scots Confession, that outlined true doctrine that could be relied upon as you worship God in the nation. At the end of this uh, list of interpretations and this list of, of confessions, uh, John Knox included the following paragraph. Listen as I read it. He wrote, if any man will note in this our confession, any article or sentence repugnant to God's holy word, that it would please him of his gentleness and for Christians' charity's sake to admonish us of the same in writing. And we, upon our honor and fidelity, do promise him satisfaction from the holy scriptures or do reformation of that which he shall prove to be amiss. Leave that up there for a second. I know that's kind of hard language to interpret, but what, what the Scotsman is saying here is that, listen, if you find anything wrong in this confession that we just worked diligently to produce, then please tell us by sending it in written form what we, what we erred in. Don't just whisper to each other. Don't just grumble and complain. We want to be right, so write it out to us and send it to us, and we commit ourselves to either responding to you in a written way that will be satisfactory to you to show you why we believe what we believe from God's word or we will change what we put in this. We will amend the confession to better conform to scripture. That is humility in the same body as boldness, isn't it? This is a man who believes what he just wrote, who believes that his interpretation of scripture is right, but is also humble enough to realize that he could have made mistakes and that if he realizes that he has, he's willing to change it. That is the heart of a true preacher. That confidence is, by necessity, not rooted in the ability of the preacher himself. It's rooted in the preacher's reliance upon the revealed word of God. That's where the authority comes from. Not from the man in the pulpit, from the God behind the pages of the book. If a man preaches anything other than scripture, he has no cause for confidence. The word makes it clear to us that there are special men set apart specifically for the preaching of the Word of God. Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. This passage of Scripture is often preached in connection with the justification for deacons because it's where the deacon office is designed and, 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 and put into play. Starting in verse 2, it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. 
See, the church was trying to take care of its own, those who were poor and, and destitute, specifically the widows and the orphans. And it, it came about that those who were Gentile believers, who did not have ethnic Israel as their background, but had come to trust in Jesus Christ, were being overlooked in the distribution of food. And so people appealed, they cried out to, uh, to the, the council there in Jerusalem and said, we're not being taken care of. And so the, the men convened and they decided it would be best to pull aside some godly men who were nevertheless not particularly gifted in preaching and put them to the task of serving so that it would be done well and with integrity. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. See, those are the two primary functions of one calls to serve as an elder or as an overseer. They are to be about the business of praying and teaching and preaching the word of Jesus Christ. So preaching is the work of the called. A minister of God will be used by God to do a great many things, but his ministry is unfocused if he is not devoting himself primarily to the preaching of the word and to prayer. Consider for a second the earthly ministry of Jesus. Think about what he did when he was on this planet. In his roughly three years of ministry that are recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that Jesus is constantly doing two things. He's constantly praying and he's constantly preaching. Those are the two hallmarks of his ministry. Now he did more than those two things, but always preaching and prayer were evident in what he was doing. Now, what does a minister today have the ability to do? We can debate whether a ministry of God can, can heal we can debate whether a minister today can raise the dead or whether he may perform signs and wonders or cast out demons. God or Jesus did those things when he was on the earth and God might do those things through a man if he so chose to. But I can tell you, I don't personally have the ability to do those things on my own. But what I do know I can do as a minister of the gospel, two things. I can be useful by, uh, for God by preaching the word and by praying for the church. Those are two critical functions of a minister. Now, even those actions, preaching and praying, require full reliance on the Holy Spirit to be done with any kind of precision or power. But realize this, the ministry of the church, as it is lined out in the New Testament scripture, as it is described by Paul, as it is established by Peter and the apostles and Barnabas and every missionary, is undeniably characterized by the preaching of God's word. How will the lost believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone has been sent, specially set aside to do the work of preaching? 2 Timothy chapter 4 expands on this concept. Timothy is a, a wonderful letter. It's called a pastoral letter because it is written by Paul, the pastor, to Timothy, another pastor. And he says in verses 1 through 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. So what, when is he told to preach? When does Paul tell Timothy to be about the work of preaching? In season and out of season. What does that mean? All the, All the time. Preaching is something that the 
the called pastor is to be ready to do at any given moment. And it also means that preaching should be a part of all the other ministry things that we are doing. When I am counseling you, when you come to my office and ask for advice or wisdom, I will gently preach the truth to you. When, when somebody is in need of correction or church discipline, we're going to preach the word of them, encourage them, and try to get them to, to turn back to what God wants for their lives. As we discuss in elders' meetings the course of the church, we preach to one another from Scripture what would be the most applicable way to, to glorify God in this body of believers. Preaching is a part of all the ministry that a pastor does. Now you might say to me, well, Pastor Nick, you guys have taught us that when you read the Word of God, you always have to ask, who is it being written to and who's writing it? And so that passage in Timothy specifically was written from a pastor to a pastor. So does that mean that me as a non-pastoral person, as a non-called believer, does that mean that it doesn't apply to me whatsoever? Today's sermon might be suddenly more relevant to you on a personal level if we put our eyes on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. This will be on the screen for you. Peter writes, But you, and he is speaking not just to pastors here. 1 Peter is a letter that was written to the churches in Asia Minor and was circulated from church to church and read to the whole assembly. These churches were comprised of Jewish and Gentile believers. So this wisdom is for everyone in the church. And he says in chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see how that message from Peter helps us to see that preaching is not just the work of the ordained minister. This passage is to all of us because Peter reminds us that if you have the Holy Spirit of God, if you have been saved and sealed with Him, that something called the priesthood of the believer now belongs to you. Unlike in that Roman Catholic Church where there was distinguished levels between the leadership and the laity, the Scripture teaches us that we are all priests now because we all have the good news of Jesus Christ. And we all have the ability to speak that truth to somebody else who needs to hear it. The reason God has granted us the priesthood of the believer is so that we might proclaim the excellences of Him who called us out of darkness and into this marvelous light that we now live. He goes on to expand on this in the next chapter, 1 Peter 3, verses 15 through 16. He says, But in your hearts... Honor Christ as Lord, as holy, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So friends, we are to all be ready. That doesn't mean that you get into a pulpit every Sunday, but every opportunity that God gives to you to share the word of God with humility, but also confidence, take that opportunity. That means that preaching is not just for preachers. In light of these verses from Peter, we learn that we are to preach the truth boldly to our neighbors. The neighborhood that God has, has you living in right now is a mission field for you. When you see your friend out watering the lawn and you go and talk to them, ask them questions about themselves, get to know them. 
show a true and genuine interest for their lives. But when the door opens up for you to point that person to Christ, walk through the door. Give them a chance to see, not from your opinions, but from Scripture, why you are dedicated to Jesus. Why God has transformed you from a creature of darkness to a creature of light. And show them that the love of God extends to anyone who will believe and confess that He is the Lord. Preach the truth boldly to your neighbor, your coworker, to the person you meet at the park, to whoever you run into who will have a conversation with you and do it out of love. Friends, we are to preach the truth boldly to our family, specifically to our children. When God gives us the blessing of kids, He has given us a wonderful stewardship. And that stewardship and that responsibility is not just to make sure that those children continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger until they can feed themselves. Our stewardship is to bring those children up in the truth of God that has been revealed to us. Someone preached to you. Someone carried the good news to your ears. You can carry the good news to the ears of your children. There's not a more important truth that you can give to them. Preach the truth also, friends, boldly to yourself. Preaching is something we all need. And so when you hear the word of God, when you're in the scripture and the truth reveals itself to you through the Holy Spirit, then preach it to you. Make sure that you realize this is not just a, a bunch of loose rules and boundaries that you might use to bless your life, but see that it is God's will for your life. And then preach to yourself so that you might be able to stand firm against the, the schemes of the devil. Preach to yourself so that when temptation rises up, you will remember and stand firm just as John Knox stood firm against every opposition that tried to take him down. Preach the truth to your own heart so that the word of God might be hidden in your heart that you might not sin against him. From 1561 to 1563, Mary, the Queen of Scots, takes the throne as regent over Scotland. She's a Catholic. So suddenly, the progress that had been made in Scotland is put in jeopardy. She's not as bold as Bloody Mary was, but conflict arises as Mary begins to exert her authority by reinstating the Roman Catholic Mass. Though it has been made illegal in Scotland under the reforms spurred on by John Knox as a form of idolatry. Five times... John Knox is summoned into the presence of this queen. Five times he is told to answer for the preaching that he is doing because he is preaching against Mary. He is not ashamed of the gospel. And so when he enters into the pulpit of the church that he preaches at, the most influential church in Scotland, he preaches against Mary, the queen of Scots, and the things that she's doing that do not line up with the word of God. And so she calls him in to speak with her and she admonishes him and tells him he must quit. And you can imagine how he responds. Each time she brings him in, he uses it as an opportunity to deliver a personal message to her. He preaches the gospel to Mary, Queen of Scots. In December 1562, during their second face-to-face -face interview, this is what John Knox says to Mary. She has admonished him and said, listen, you have too much influence in this land. If you have a problem with me, don't preach it from your pulpit. Come and talk directly to me. And he responds by saying this. I am called, madam, to a public function within the church of God. And I am appointed by God to rebuke the sins and vices of all. I am not appointed to come to every man in particular to show him his offense, for that labor would be infinite. 
if your grace please to frequent the public sermons, then doubt I not, but that ye shall fu uh, fully understand both what I like and mislike, as well in your majesty as in others. You see what John Knox was saying to her was that, listen, if you came and listened to the word preached, I think you would understand full well what God expects not only of you, but of all of us. I'm not preaching against Mary, Queen of Scots. I am preaching God's word against all people who would stand opposed to him in sin. Very bold from a man who is under the thumb of this queen. What does Knox believe the queen regent needs? The same thing we all need, clear biblical preaching. Queen of Scots is in a really tough place because Knox is a thorn in her side and she would like to make him disappear. But he is so beloved at this point by his fellow Scotsmen for his willingness to stand boldly and proclaim the truth that she knows that if she kills the man, she'll have a revolution on her hands. And so he consistently assures her that he is the, he's only speaking what he must speak as a witness of God's word and that if she would conform to scriptures, she would ensure the peaceful submission of her subjects. Though Mary, Queen of Scots, would eventually find herself exiled after many scandals and affairs that she brought upon herself, Knox would continue on leading the countrymen with sound biblical preaching and good doctrine. Knox, even into his 50s, preached twice on Sundays and three times during the week, expounding the word of God with confidence that it was exactly what Scotland needed. On November 24th, 1572, no longer strong enough to enter the pulpit, John Knox passed into eternity, having left an undeniable mark on his country and on the Reformation itself. He was buried in the churchyard of St. Giles Cathedral. For the last several months of his life, two of his friends had lifted him physically into the pulpit where he would lean upon the lectern and preach the word of God softly. People could barely hear, but the place would remain absolutely silent so that people could hear from this man of God who was so committed to the truth. But when his time of preaching was finished, God took him home. And friends, if you go back to Scotland today and you try to visit the grave of this man who had such a profound impact on Scotland as a nation, on the Reformation as a whole, even on democracy for his willingness to stand against powers that were oppressive, you will not find a grave marked for him. He was buried in the churchyard of St. Giles Church. And in the years that came, many people heralded his name, but with the passing of his preaching, many people began to forget the impact that John Knox had made. If you go to Scotland today, there's a great big shiny parking lot in the Church of Giles. And John Knox is buried under parking lot, lot number 23. They forgot about the work that this man did to free them from the grip of idolatry. And that is what happens, friends, when we stray from good biblical preaching. We need the word expounded confidently to our hearts. We need to be confronted with the truth. We need to hear it in such a way that God can work with the Holy Spirit in us and make us more like His Son. And if we turn our backs on the preaching of the true word, then we might find ourselves an unnumberable amount of preachers who would gladly pat us on the back and make us feel good about who we've become. Pulpits in America are filled with moral platitudes and good advice, but it is harder and harder each day to find people who will preach the true word. 
So how do we protect the ministry of the word preached in power? First of all, you might ask yourself, where is the word preached regularly? It is preached in the church. So we support biblical preaching by being committed to our church, by regularly coming underneath the teaching of God's word. And Americans today are becoming less and less devoted to regularly attending their church and regularly gathering with their brothers and sisters so that all of us can be put under the, the authority of God's revealed truth. So we can begin to support strong biblical preaching by supporting our churches and by being here regularly and letting the Word of God speak reach, richly to us. Secondly, do not support churches that do not preach the Word. I am well aware of the fact that Antioch is not a destination location for many people in the world. Little kids don't grow up and think, one day I'm going to get a good job in Silicon Valley, and if everything falls right for me, I'm going to get a big old house in the East Bay in Antioch. <laughs> I know that, all right? I'm aware of it. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't put people here for a reason. Some of you will be here for a time, and I pray that while you're here, you will pour your heart into this place. That while you're in this area, that you will care, and, care about and pray for Brentwood and Antioch and Oakley and Rio Vista and Discovery Bay and Concord and Pittsburgh. That you will care about this area. But I know full well that you might not stay here your whole life. There's a pretty big revolving door in Antioch of people who are here for a time and then they move somewhere else. Wherever you go, you support biblical preaching by finding a church that preaches the truth and does it with strength and with conviction. Do not support a church where the word of God is simply a relic that is around as an icon or as a little, little reminder of what used to be but is no longer preached in truth. Make sure that you put yourself under preaching where the word is center, where the word defines what is taught, where the word teaches us and not some opinions of men replicated in the, in the, the hearers who don't really know what the word says. So support churches that preach the word. Read the word on your own. Be in the scripture. If you're being fed once a week from the word of God, you're going to become spiritually skinny real fast. You need the nourishment of God's truth regularly on a day-to-day -day basis so that when you come on a Sunday morning, you can keep me accountable. I need you as much as you need me. I need your ears and eyes to point out if I make a mistake. I, I need you to make sure that I'm preaching the truth. Paul, Chris, myself, your elders, we are grateful that this is a place where we have the freedom to preach the truth and not be run out of dodge because the church wants a, a, a person who will tickle their ears or just lift them up every day and make them feel like they're good enough. When all that we have is God's truth, we must preach that. We have no alternative. So read the word on your own so that you can watch your preachers and keep them accountable as well. And then finally, preach the very preaching that you receive from this pulpit. Don't just let it die in your seat. The message that you hear, take it into your life. Speak about it with your children. Preach the things that are preached to you to others so that the message will continue to flow out of the four walls of this church and will make an impact on our city, on our county, on our state, and on our nation. Ultimately, though, friends, realize this. Good preaching protects us more than we protect good preaching. Our best defense, brothers and sisters, is to preach the word to ourselves, proclaiming the truth that God reveals to us in his scripture again and again until we accept it. And then once we've accepted that truth, continue preaching it to ourselves again and again so we won't forget it, so that we will live according to the mighty trumpet blast that God desires to send throughout the world.
May the preaching of John Knox be an inspiration to you, not so that you would lift that man up on a pedestal, but so that you would see that God can use anyone to do the great work of bringing the gospel to the world. May he continue to reform and refine our hearts in the pattern of the Reformation we experienced 500 years ago. Would you all bow with me for a word of prayer? God, we thank you for this day, and I praise you for my brothers and sisters who let me preach long today. I pray, God, that uh, the story of this man would inspire us, would challenge us, Lord God, and that you would not let us become uh, like little children who don't know anything, Lord God, but that we would become like children who desire to know everything, that we would have a thirst and a hunger for the word, Lord, that we would be inquisitive, that we would seek out good preaching, Lord God, that we would not be satisfied with an hour and a half of, of uh, public preaching on a Sunday morning, God, but that we would desire to hear more of it throughout the week, that we would meditate on the things we hear, that we would take notes and go over them through the week, that we would open our scriptures and that we would seek you out, Lord God, because you are our source of hope, you are our strength, and there is no good wisdom that does not come from you. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to understand how much you love us, that you would give us good preaching, a constant uh, sign to beckon us back to the truth. I pray, Father, that we would respond to that love with obedience because you are our good Father and we are your sons and daughters. Keep us close to you, Lord God. Let the word dwell richly in our hearts today. We pray this all in Jesus' name.